0: Like Mike said, my name is Nick Williamson. I am indeed one of the elders here. Um, It's been a while since I've been up here, so a little bit about me in case we haven't had a chance to meet yet. Um, I am a structural engineer. That's my day job. Um, My wife, Annie, is working in the children's ministry back there. We have five kids, and we have number six. We're kind of in an any-minute-now situation. Um, So Trevor has been on call up until right now. You can officially... You're good. Um, <laughs> so we are this morning going to be in 1 John. We're going to be starting in chapter 1, verse 5, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 2, verse 6. So go ahead and open up there. Um, and, and, you know, kind of just as a general introduction, we are going to be spending the summer in in this book. Um, while David's away on sabbatical, um, myself and a handful of other preachers, we're going to just walk through this this book. So... Just by way of introduction, because it's been a, a few weeks since we had our first sermon in the series, um, this book was written by the apostle John. Right? John wrote the fourth gospel, so the gospel of John. He wrote two other very, very short epistles, and then he also wrote the book of Revelation. Um, John had a very, very unique vantage point from, of Jesus' ministry. He was referred to in scripture as the, the disciple that Jesus loved. He sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He was the one that Jesus from the cross gave the um, assignment of, of taking care of his mom when he was gone. Um, John was one of the very first people to see the empty tomb. John had the proper qualifications to write this letter. And what he's doing with this letter is he's he's writing it to try to combat some heresies that the church was dealing with towards the end of the first century. Um, John was one of the later New Testament writers, and so he you know, he got to see the establishment of the church, the capital C church, and then he got to see some of the first issues that they dealt with. Um, and so what he's really trying to do in this letter is to just remind believers what it means to be a Christian, um, because that is and that was and that will always be something that we just so easily forget and so that's just the beauty of of this letter is it just takes us back to the basics and so with that i'm going to read our passage and pray and we'll get started so starting in verse five this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that god is light and in him is no darkness at all If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments." Father, thank you for your words and for your church. Thank you for this opportunity to gather for worship this morning. As we examine a passage of scripture, I feel totally inadequate to preach on. I pray your glory would shine through my words. God, thank you for your presence of your spirit. And I ask for your blessing over our time together. Amen. So this passage, to put it mildly, is, is dense, right? There's a lot going on here. These 12 verses are so packed with gospel truth that you could easily preach a sermon on each of them, and many have. Um, I bought a book in preparation for this. It was all of the sermons that British pastor Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on the book of First John. Like, First John's four or five pages in your Bible, right? He has 700 pages worth of sermons on this, and he has over a hundred pages just on this passage, right? There's a lot happening here. We get themes like the holiness of God, the fallenness of human nature, what it means to have fellowship with God, confession and cleansing of sin, Jesus' advocacy for us, the doctrine of propitiation, limited atonement, and assurance of salvation. And I'm sure there's more in there. So rather than, you know, spending 12 to 15 weeks going through this passage, I get 20 minutes. So we're going to do a 10,000 foot flyover, but we're going to do it through the lens of this this theme that I think is present throughout all of this. And that theme is this, that our actions are more important than our words. I'm going to say it again. This is what I want you to remember. What we do, our actions are more important than what we say, our words. So I'm going to immediately jump in and start playing defense because we're in a Presbyterian church and we feel like anytime we talk about works at all, like Martin Luther is going to bust through the door and he's going to bow up and he's going to be ready to fight. But, you know, hear me loud and clear. Our salvation is possible only because of what Jesus did on the cross. We have done and we can do nothing to earn favor with God. That can only come through the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone. Period. Like, I'm not at all disputing that. But that can often leave us in kind of an awkward situation, right? So, if we can do nothing ourselves to earn our salvation, how can we ever know that we're actually saved? How can we know that our loved ones are saved, or our roommate, or, or anybody, you know, like they, they walked down the altar, they said the prayer with the pastor, and then nothing in their life changes. So how can we know that that person is actually saved? And so that's what we're really going to dive into today. So we're going to start by looking at verse 5, just right at the beginning there. And in this, in this verse, we have a very simple declaration, and it's that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is a theme that's in the Bible quite literally from the beginning. Right, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So if we would have been around back then, in this timeline of creation, we wouldn't have actually been able to see anything. There was no light. God had not yet revealed any of that to us. And so without light, darkness is all we can know or experience. It's totally overwhelming. But then in the very next verse, before God Does or creates anything else, he he speaks for the first time, and his first words are, Let there be light. So before he does or creates anything, he shines his light of revelation on his creation so that his creation can experience it. Throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself to his people in various ways, right? He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He spoke to Abraham. He met Moses on the mountain to give him instructions for how to live. He provided for the Israelites in, in multitude of ways in the, in the wilderness. He was patient with sinful leaders. And he showed justice by punishing those who just continually disobeyed him, even to the point of exiling his own people from their promised land. But then jump ahead in the story just a little bit more, and we come to Jesus. And it's no coincidence that Jesus is referred to as the light of the world. In fact, it's John who most frequently revisits this theme. Um, Just looking at three verses in the Gospel of John. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So when God sent Jesus, he sent us the ultimate revelation about who he is. In Jesus, God gives us everything we need to know about him in order to live in right relationship with him. It's in God's nature to reveal himself to us. He could just declare things about himself to be true, and because he's God, they would be true. But instead, he graciously has chosen to show us that these things are true, to demonstrate that they're true. And this is how we function, right? Like we can know somebody loves us because they tell us they love us. But we experience that on a whole different level when we see that in action, when we see somebody give of themselves sacrificially for us, right? I knew my wife loved me on our wedding day. I know it a lot more now, and I'm gonna know it a lot more when Lord willing, we've been married for 50 years, right? So we don't have to wonder about God's love or holiness or justice because we've seen that these things are true. The coming of Jesus, the true light, is God revealing himself to the world fully. The action he has taken has proven that the things he has said about himself are true. And one of the biggest and most painful things that he reveals about himself to us is he is holy and we cannot live up to that standard. Even when we become believers, we still continually fall short. We are sinful. We do sinful things every day. And we're uncomfortable with this. We try to create euphemisms to talk around it. And that's right what he jumps into in these next several verses. He, he tackles three lies that we still tell ourselves every single day. And so the first one, I'm going to get this from verses 6 and 7 is the lie that we can have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness. This is, uh, this is centered around like our daily actions and habits, just the things that we do. Um, walking, for most of us, is something that's it's easy. We don't think about it that often until it's become difficult. It's just kind of, it happens. It's, a, it's at the subconscious level. And so walking in darkness here is a reference to pursuing a pattern of life apart from god this is different from sinning right we just said we all sin this is living unrepentantly this is um you know this this is making excuses it's not taking drastic measures to change these habitual sins it is it is intentionally going into the day with this mindset that i don't care what god says i'm going to do it my way anyway So on the other hand, walking in the light doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means to pursue a pattern of life that's guided by the light that shines from God and reveals to us what is good and and true and beautiful and right. It means we live in fellowship with other believers. It means that we confess our sins to, to God and to one another and that we repent of those sins so that we can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. These behaviors result in a deep divine and human fellowship that lead to a lifetime of progressive sanctification. The second lie, and I get this from verses 8 and 9, is that we have no sin. And this is a denial of our sin nature. This is an attempt to deny that, that the actions of Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden, that they have any relevance on my life today. Um... It's a belief that deep down we're basically good and that all we really need to do in order to create some sort of you know, perfect humanity, some utopia, is just to let people be who they're meant to be. Um, it's, a, it's a belief that we just need to love people better and more and then everything's gonna be okay. And scripture just tells us this is not the case. One example is in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Man is utterly fallen because of the sin nature that we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And because the result of that first sin was death, then we too are dead in our sin. And the thing about being dead is that there's nothing you can do to change that, right? There's no productivity hack or influencer tip or anything like that that's gonna make a dead person Come alive. The only way that can happen is through divine assistance. And so verses eight and nine tell us that until we accept that fact and we confess our sins, we're deceiving ourselves. However, once we do accept this fact, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Once we're able to admit that we're sinful deep down to our core, and that because of that sin nature that we are dead, once we can accept that there is a totally unsolvable problem with who we are, then God allows us to call out to him for help, and he will reach down and offer his hand of salvation. And the third lie, and this is from, from verse 10, is that we have not sinned. And this is denial of the actual sins that we have committed. Um, verse 10 puts it very bluntly, to deny that we have sinned is to call God a liar, which doesn't sound like a great position to be in. Um, you know, if the gospel's taken root in you, then you've had the opportunity, like we said, to just to see the marvelous wonder and works of God. And you'll see through these that God is not a liar. When God says something, it will happen. He may have a different timeline than us. He may fulfill things in a, in a way we're not expecting, but when he promises something, it happens, and he is not a liar and so if we if we say we haven't sinned and we know god's not a liar like that puts us in a bad position right that that means the gospel hasn't taken root in us and so when reading these verses i couldn't help but think of um, one of my favorite scenes from the 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 TV show the office okay so in this scene, Michael Scott the boss he is he is facing the reality of his financial situation, which is pretty bleak. Um, his girlfriend Jan is spending all of his money, um, and he's broke. He's working a second job, and some of his coworkers are trying to help him out through this process, right? And they're they're pointing out all these just ridiculous purchases that purchases that she's made. And you know, at first he he denies that she's the problem. He he tries to. Um, justify the purchases, defend her, he, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's like, it's blatantly obvious that this is the problem, but that's kind of one of the running jokes throughout the whole series is that nothing's obvious to him, right? So finally, they kind of break through and he realizes, okay, this is bad. And the only solution is to declare bankruptcy. So he walks out into the office and he just shouts at the top of his lungs, I declare bankruptcy. But obviously these words are meaningless. They don't don't mean anything. Michael declaring bankruptcy in the middle of his office did nothing. It did nothing to change his situation. He doesn't have the power or the authority to, to do anything just by shouting these words. And because we are sinful, right? we can say otherwise. We can declare ourselves to be righteous. We can shout it as loud as we want. But it doesn't make it true. We don't have that kind of authority. And so, when we get to the first verse of chapter 2, we see that we have an advocate in Jesus. Advocate here literally means called alongside. This is, um, this is someone who's been summoned to the assistance of another. It's a mediator, it's an intercessor, It's a helper. Um, For Michael, this would have been like a financial professional to guide him through the bankruptcy process. Um, And so, for us, what we need an advocate for is to help us navigate the chasm that exists between us and God because we are dead in our sin and he is holy. Like, that is not a gap we can get through by ourselves. And so, this is what Jesus does for us he takes action on our behalf. Verse 2 tells us how Jesus serves as our advocate. He does this by serving as the propitiation for our sins. Big word, it's actually come up several times recently um, over the last couple of months. And he was so he was not only sent to help us navigate the sin problem, he was sent to be the solution to the sin problem. He not only stepped in on our behalf, he guides us To himself and then offers himself up as the solution. So you see, Jesus was the only one who could do this. Alone in the history of the universe stands Jesus as the one who is properly qualified to solve the sin problem, right? You need someone who is holy, but you also need a payment for the sins that we have committed. And so his sinless, righteous life and substitutionary death allowed him to both stand before the holy God as our advocate and then to offer himself as payment for our sins to satisfy the wrath of God. Only Jesus could do this. And so if we take all the things that Jesus said, going back to our theme, we have a great teacher, right? We have somebody who, who gave us great words to live by. But, but that's really it. And this is no different than how a lot of other religions are. Right, They have a great teacher, and that's about it. So what makes Jesus different from a great teacher, what takes him from, from teacher to Messiah, before whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, are the actions that he took. He came down, he emptied himself, he took the form of a servant, and he humbled himself to death on the cross. So, The question we always have to be asking ourselves is, what do we do about this, right? What does our response need to be? Well, first, we have to believe these things to be true, right? We have to declare them to be true. If this hasn't happened, then then nothing else matters. If it hasn't happened, then you are separated from God. Just because our actions are more important than our words, it doesn't mean that our words aren't important. Just think about all the, the elements of the Christian life that are verbal, that require words, right? You've got preaching, teaching, evangelism, confession, comforting, rebuking, correcting, prayer. I'm sure there's more. And these all require words. They require specific words and they require words that, that mean something. But if we've declared that these things about Jesus are true, if we, if we say that we believe them, well, then we have to, to prove that we believe them. Right? or just because we say it doesn't mean anything. And so we do that through the way that we live. Simply saying that we believe something isn't enough. A true response to the gospel message necessitates a change in your life. Jesus told us that leaving our old life and sinful ways behind should feel like taking up your cross and dying every single day. It should cost you something. And part of this change behavior means that we obey Christ's commands, right? We should demonstrate with everything that we have that we love God and that we we love our neighbor. We should show radical hospitality. We should care for the weak and the needy. We should forgive those who have wronged us and we should seek forgiveness from those that we had wronged. This obedience, it doesn't merit God's favor or his love that was settled on the cross like we have that, So obedience means that we're in Christ, though. And because we have his love, our lives have been transformed, and so we can't help but show it. And One of the beautiful things about this obedience is that the very act of obeying Christ out of a genuine love for God. This is the grounds for our assurance of salvation. It is the assurance that we are genuinely in him. Right? In other words, we can know that we are saved because we have spent our lives in obedience to him. And conversely, our disobedience doesn't remove his love, but it does affect our assurance. We cannot confidently claim that we're in Christ if we do nothing to, to show that, if we show no evidence that our lives are his. Our claim must be demonstrated through a lifetime of actions that are in obedience to him whom we claim to serve. So when it comes to salvation, our words are important. Until we declare that Jesus is our Savior, we cannot be saved. But these words aren't ultimate. We must prove over the course of our life in him that we believe them to be true by being obedient to what Christ has commanded us to do. And our passage ends in verse 6 saying, Whoever says he abides in him, and that's Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So wrapping up, Christianity is built on promises. God made grand, specific promises all throughout the Old Testament. He promised Adam and Eve after they fell that their offspring would crush the head of the serpent while himself being bruised. He promised Abraham that his offspring would become a great nation. He promised Moses that he would deliver his people. He promised David that he would have a son on the throne forever. He made a lot of promises, but as we've seen, those words are not cheap. He followed through with them, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all these promises. So because we know that God has shown that he is faithful to keep his promises, we know that we can trust him. Um, one of my favorite verses in scripture is from 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 15, and it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth. God has proven his faithfulness to us by his works toward us throughout all of history. He has shown us that the promises he made were not in vain. His love that he promised with his mouth has been fulfilled by his hand, and that that promise will continue to be fulfilled until all is made right again in the new heavens and the new earth. Would you pray with me? Father, you're good. In a world that's fallen and broken, inhabited by fallen, broken sinners, this can be very easy for us to forget. We can so focus on how others have hurt or wronged us or lied to us or not followed through. We mistakenly assume that you're the same way. God, let us not make this assumption any longer. God, help us know that you love us because you say that you love us and because your actions from the beginning of the universe have shown that you love us. God, help us to respond to you in the same way by showing over our lifetime in Christ that we believe you have saved us by following your commands and chief among them is loving you and loving others. God, every day when we walk in the same way in which Jesus walked, Amen.